Mr. Waller, I've offered this man a lot of money to do this. Okay? Because it's worth it to me. However, I don't care if I end up penniless. I don't care if I have to spend my life savings. I will see to it that you end up in the hospital for one week, Mr. Waller. Do you understand me? <laughs> I need me a Japanese. Ah! <laughs> I love it! I love it! I'm gonna be people from everywhere! I need me a Japanese! I don't have to defend the title of I'm here, and I'm gonna be here until I feel like I wanna leave. And if you don't like me being here, train to be a professional wrestler, get in this ring, and I'll beat you like I own you. Hello there, folks. Welcome back to We Don't Know Wrestling. It has been a long, long layoff, but I am happy to kind of be back with another episode of the Desert Island Comp series. Uh, in this episode, I have someone that's been putting together video essays on YouTube, kind of creating an, exploring a niche that really hasn't been explored in wrestling, um, so I'm excited to have Joseph Monticilio on the podcast today. Joseph, how are you? I am doing all right. Uh, it's been a crazy week, uh, as we're talking, but, you know, uh, Pushing through, trucking on, all the same. Well, that's good. I think right now, everyone's just doing their best, and that's all uh, we can all ask for. Um, yeah. And somehow the wrestling world has managed not to stop, so we're still here. Somehow, you know, just by by the means of a few billion dollars, I heard. Yeah, via the cockroach uh, methodology, wrestling will not die. Um regardless of any outstanding situations in the world. So we're here. Um, but we're not going to here to talk about just current wrestling, because pretty much all that, most of what we're going to talk about is actually going to be prior wrestling. We're going to talk about Desert Island Cop, which is matches and angles that you're going to be taking with you to a special place that for the rest of your days, this is the only matches and angles and promos that you're going to be able to experience. So... Usually I ask, hey, what got you into wrestling? Um, and something, things of that nature. But I think a lot of that is going to be kind of usually come out during this uh, series of breaking down the copulation. But I did want to ask you, how did you get into specifically um, your YouTube channel um, and creating content there? Well, I've had the YouTube channel for a while, actually. Like, I was, I don't know, 10, 12 when I first signed on to YouTube and... Uh, I was just a kid posting whatever. Uh, like I, I went through this phase where I really liked content from that guy with the glasses dot com, uh, formerly known as Channel Awesome. So that didn't age well at all. <laughs> um, I would post. Uh, I would copy the template for the five second films that Doug Walker used to do, and all of those videos are completely gone from my channel. So don't even try to find it. Uh, they are disappeared via magical means. And as I got older, the content I watched on YouTube would change. Uh, I started watching more video essays. Probably the first. Uh, most famous example was Every Frame of Painting. A few friends shared that with me in college, I think. And that led me on to find other people like Lindsay Ellis and the way they presented their ideas and talked about media that meant a lot to them. It kind of influenced me. And I thought, well, I don't really 
see people using this form to talk about pro wrestling. So I thought I'd just go from there. Amazing. Yeah. So I'm in YouTube marketing and a lot of familiar what I, a lot of sponsorships we do and a lot of what I now watch are video essays. So being able to now have kind of an outlet to watch something that, oh, I don't have, not just movies, um, not just video games, uh, but now wrestling is being covered. I think what you're doing is kind of exploratory to a nature that hasn't really been touched on. So I'm glad you're doing it. And I know your recent um, Brian Danielson video has been tremendously received. You got a lot of, you put a lot of work into that. Um, Over an hour of content, over an hour of breaking down, giving words from wrestlers um, and all that. I think what you're doing has been great. And I think you're, you deserve a little bit of a, Hey, let's just do some quick and fun ones um, going forward, but we'll see if you're able to do that. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. You know, my, uh, I have a friend here at home uh, and they say that uh, they've been listening to me build this case for Brian Danielson for about a year now. So they call it the Okada of wrestling takes. I, I just never stop. It's just on and on. It goes on forever. Now, what it reminds me of in a way is someone that's been posting on a message board for a decade and then finally makes the thread where they make the breakdown of, okay, here is the now two-page long essay based on a decade of posting. Um, And this is you after um, reviews, after talking to your friends, after videos. Like, okay, here's the culmination of all that. Um, So I'll essentially never have to do that again. Um, And this is the genuine article. This is the thing that, hey... If you want to know what my thoughts are on this specific subject, I've done it. I've done the legwork. It's you don't have to ask me. It's here. Um, so that's always fun. That's always yeah, fun. Absolutely, it's just there. It's it's an hour. If anyone ever asks me ever again, who's your favorite wrestler and why? Link. There, you have an hour. Uh, sit down, <laughs> tuck in, enjoy. I will explain in great detail. The YouTube chapters feature could not have come at a better time for yourself. Um, I know it was uh, I I only discovered it seeing it on another video essay uh, I think by Jack Saint and uh, I saw that and I was like I I need to do that one this is gonna be an hour I need yeah um well I'm just glad that admittedly from a YouTube perspective they let anyone do that um that's always the big worry with these platforms like hmm are they gonna gate the cool features um no no um, well, all right. Without further ado, if you don't mind, we're going to get kicking into your first match. Sound all right? Sure, let's go ahead. All right, so for your first match, it is from All Japan Super Power Series 1995. It is June 9th, 1995. You don't really need an introduction here. Um, Holy Demon Army versus Kenta Kobashi and Masawa. Uh, yeah, that's the first match. You really kicked things off here with a bang. Joseph, why is this your first match? I need to have this match. I think it's, it's, it's my favorite match ever. Uh, it's so good. Just everything about it is so good. I first saw it when I must have been like 11 or 12, and I've been watching it for years since, and it, 
only gets better, and that is astonishing to me. This is such an achievement of a match. Yeah, I think this is... When people put together the list of greatest matches of all time, um, this is certainly on there. Like, this is one of those matches that um, also transcends kind of a community, um, bridges a gap with a lot of fans um, that are in this bubble where at the end of the day, like... Whether you're kind of been doing, been exploring this niche for um, a couple of years or a decade, um, usually it still ends up towards the top of a lot of people's lists. So um, I know you've done a series on on King's Roads and stuff. So um, obviously the thoughts are out there. Um, but yeah, I think this is kind of one of those matches where it's a favorite for a lot of people. And I'm kind of uh, always interested in people pick the canon matches. Because um, people shy away from those at times. Um, Honestly, I didn't want to do too many obvious picks. But uh, just the concept of this series of the matches you need to have with you. Uh, and it's all you can watch. I, I cannot lose this match. There is such a unique element to it. Uh, where all four guys, the characters just work. Their dynamics are so set. They've been working together on and off for like two, three years at this point. And this is kind of just the culmination of all the arcs they've been building. And it gets it gets like surprisingly emotional towards the finishing stretch. Like uh, Kenta Kobashi covering Misawa's dying body with his own to protect him from the blows of the holy demon army that's just that is that is another level of wrestling that i've yet to ever see matched in my life yeah i i think that's always going to be a hard one to overcome and things like question for you when in your wrestling fandom like did you watch this like how i guess this kind of bridges the gap of how long have you been watching wrestling i'm always interested where this kind of match um, gets plugged in because it feels like it's a either a culmination of a lot of things or it's a changing point for a lot of people um, just because it, it's one of those Dave Meltzer five-star matches. So it always kind of, for someone new, it could pop up. For someone that's been building their fandom, this is also something that could definitely pop up. So when did like with when did you start watching wrestling? Kind of when did this match um, come into play? Right. This was definitely one of those turning point matches instead of a culmination one. I started watching wrestling in 2006, um, and I must have seen this match around 2009 or so when I first started discovering stuff like Ring of Honor. And I I, I probably discovered it via Ring of Honor uh, because they would always feature guys from NOAA, and I would look up Japanese wrestling because of that. And this might have been my first or second all Japan '90s match that I ever watched, and it's it's stuck with me ever since. Yeah, this kind of goes into the context discussions. Like, oh, this is a great match that you can watch out of context, but then when you also go back and have all the additional information needed, um, can really just like, oh, that's a even warmer feeling um, that I got going on here. So cool. Yeah, and I think that journey of oh, I watched ROH. And that kind of springboarded me to Japanese wrestling. That springboarded me to even more avenues here. Um, it's common and very cool. I that was, I had a similar journey. So 
amazing. That is our first match in the Desert Island Comp for you, Joseph. Are you ready to move on to number two? Yeah, absolutely. So next up, we have from Ring of Honor's sixth anniversary from the Manhattan Center, uh, February 23rd, 2008. It is Nigel McGuinness versus Brian Danielson. Now, Joseph, why did you pick this match for your Desert Island Comp? Okay, so uh, I have to have a Brian Danielson match. He's my favorite wrestler of all time. I think he's the greatest wrestler of all time. And uh, I know that the Nigel series is beloved and everyone has their favorites in that series. The most common answers probably are unified and driven. Uh, so most people will fall into one of those two. But for me, uh, the sixth anniversary one completely takes the cake. And none of the other matches actually come close. This is the only Nigel versus Brian match that I've rated five stars. And it's so, it's so special in the history of wrestling because I feel told here where they set up early in the night that Nigel doesn't want to defend the belt because he doesn't want to get concussed. And Brian says, I, I just want the title match. I need to see the belt defended. It's the sixth anniversary. It's a major event. So I promise I won't hit you in the head at all, Nigel. And I've never seen that in wrestling. I've never seen like a gentleman's agreement like that where it became an integral part of the psychology of the match. And the way it played out, too, was so perfect in sort of delineating the characters of these two. So they go into it. It's a standard title match. New York hates Nigel at this point, right? They detest his guts, you know, for you know for the audacity of Nigel to, to tear his bicep. How dare he, right? How dare he need time to heal as a human being? They hate him for it, and Brian is here just completely wrestling circles around him without going for the head. There's none of the elbows. There's none of the kicks to the head. And Nigel just looks for every single way to undercut Brian possible. And it's amazing. He tries to get himself disqualified, but the match gets restarted. Uh, he's constantly cheating. He's jawing with the fans the whole time. And it all culminates in the most dastardly heel move, I feel, has ever been recorded in the history of wrestling. Where Nigel, who said, I don't want to get concussed tonight, starts headbutting Dragon in his bad eye from the Morishima matches. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. I love this match. It's, the o it's one of the few times that wrestling was able to do this kind of... <sighs> almost high-concept morality play that we've seen attempted since, particularly in maybe the Stenerico series or a lot of the NXT main events, but I don't think it ever really got much better than this one. Yeah, I think that pretty much says it all for you, I guess. Uh, it's definitely not the first match that comes to mind for myself and I think a lot of others, but I think you've pretty much outlined... This series is special, um, not just to you, for a lot of people. I think it's kind of important to the history of independent wrestling as it bridges sort of a gap 
um, from one one generation to another. Um, I don't think we immediately have a great handoff from this generation to the next, but I think this is kind of a <laughs> great trans- transitioning feud, that rivalry. Um, and I think you've kind of outlined why, oh, this match is different than the other matches. Um, the other matches, great professional wrestling matches, but there's a certain aspect to this match specifically of what they're trying to do and how they've differentiated themselves from themselves um, to provide something that's unique, different, um, and structurally just uh, feels above and beyond. So, no, that makes a ton of sense. And it also felt like the first time in the series where they kind of settled into the roles that I knew them for, like, because I was discovering the Nigel versus Brian series in retrospect. Um, I don't know how people felt these two uh, were supposed to be positioned or what roles actually fit for them at the time. But the way I always knew it was that Nigel was the heel. He was the cocky, smarmy uh, bad guy, and Brian was like this ultra skilled babyface wrestler. And for most of their early series, that wasn't the dynamic at all. Uh, Brian was the early heel in 2006, and then in 2007, they're both kind of playing babyface characters. And it was here in this match in 2008 where they really settled into the okay, Brian is the guy, he's the babyface, he is ROH. And Nigel is just this bitter, angry person, and he's trying to take everything away from Brian. And that, 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 that's what makes it so significant in the series as a whole. They were performing their best in their best roles. Um, yeah, I, I can totally see why this made your, your compilation here. Um, so then without further ado, we're going to keep on moving, get to match number three. Third match on the Desert Island Comp for you, Joseph. Uh, is from No Mercy 2002, North Little Rock, going from the Altel Arena. Uh, it is Undertaker versus Brock Lesnar in a Hell in a Cell match. Joseph, why did this match make your Desert Island Comp? Okay, so when I was a kid, my favorite wrestler was The Undertaker. Like, uh, as a child in the 2000s, discovering pro wrestling, it's it's kind of impossible to miss The Undertaker. He had such presence he had such an aura about him um and he just stood out how could he not he was this mystical funeral director with lightning powers and he he was he was so above everyone else he was presented to be so above everyone else that he he as an opponent is a meme like he is a punishment like, that's why Teddy Long saying you're going to go one-on-one with The Undertaker is a meme. Because th- there was such dread when someone had to wrestle The Undertaker. And because of that, because he stuck out, he stuck out to me so much. Uh, he was the one, one of the first wrestlers that I bought a compilation for. Uh, locally, they used to sell the compilation VCDs for WWE wrestlers. And I bought the one for The Undertaker in parts. It came in like five parts. <laughs> so it was The Undertaker uh, series part one, part two, part three, part five. And you know the worst part about that is the back of the VCD had the listings for the whole set. 
So when I bought my first copy, which was like the fifth part in the set, <laughs> I was like, why are there only like five matches? I was promised like 20. And, oh, and then I, I realized I had to buy the whole thing. So I kind of one at a time completed the oh, collection. I, a complete ripoff, but in a way, almost worth it. Because I, I loved The Undertaker that much that I, I really just had to see all of them. And luckily, that first one I bought, Part 5, uh, it covered the later half of his career. I think the set ended with his return at Mania 20 when he became the dead man again after being buried alive. And one of the matches on that list, uh, on that particular part of the collection was this one. It was Brock Lesnar versus The Undertaker. And um, I had started watching in wrestling in 06, so blood wasn't gone. But I think this was the bloodiest I'd seen wrestling be up to that point. So just visually, it was so striking that it always stuck in my memory. And it sort of defined what Hell in a Cell should be. For me, personally, as a fan, because I didn't grow up watching wrestling in the 90s, so I wasn't there for Mankind, I wasn't there for Shawn Michaels, but when I saw this, I was like, okay, this, this is what it means to be hell in a cell. It's just two men bleeding their guts out on each other. Uh, One of their managers is on the outside, also bleeding profusely, and I just thought... Absolutely, it's hell in a cell. This is exactly what it is. They painted the canvas literally red. Oh, it's an amazing match. No, yeah, I think for you, for a dozen island comp, having one of your favorite wrestlers on there, hugely important. Um, having a match that uh, encapsulates a genre of match, hell in a cell, fantastic. And I think this specific one, I think this is the one that kind of comes to mind for me for hell in a cell, um, as someone that's not a huge fan of the original with Michaels and Undertaker, I think this is what I want from that match. Less um, over-the-top drama necessarily, but more so like grounded violence. Like this is, is admittedly one of the more violent matches you're going to get um, in WWE, uh, period. So this is wonderful. Uh, i very happy this made your uh, compilation. And it's funny, I, I went on a little bit of a journey with this match uh, through my fandom. Uh, so as a kid, right, absolutely loved it. It's amazing. Look at all the blood. It's crazy. Um, as I got older, right, and I started posting on forums, started reading up um, uh, other people's opinions on wrestling, started forming my own aesthetics of wrestling. As I got older and I revisited it, I suddenly lost a taste for it a bit because I... I discovered a flaw in the match, right? So uh, as I got older and I started posting on forums and I went back to this match, I was like, "This, wait a minute, wait a minute now. The whole story is Undertaker's hand is completely wrecked and Lesnar tears off the bandages and then Taker spends the whole match punching him in the face like it's nothing, right? So I thought, oh man, it's a little less than perfect. Uh, Taker's no-selling the hand. But then... I did the smart thing and actually watched the pay-per-view. And there's a glorious discovery, just a gift, a gift to anyone who's ever thought, why did Taker no-sell the hand? There is a backstage segment 
earlier in the night in No Mercy that's not included on that VCD of Undertaker getting a shot of adrenaline in his hand so that he doesn't feel the pain. And that completely wipes out the little quibble I had. It's like, oh yeah, he can't feel it. He's on drugs. He shot his hand up so that it doesn't hurt. And suddenly, it's a perfect match again. Oh, it's wonderful. It completely covered all its bases. Man, now every time anyone ever says, wow, it's the adrenaline in these New Japan Pro Wrestling main events from 2013 through 2000 and now, I, I just want to s- literally see someone roll to the outside, get shot up with some adrenaline, like hit him right in the bicep, the ass cheek, whatever you got to do. Um, and that's when the <laughs> adrenaline really starts kicking in. That's what I want to see. Like that makes all that would make everyone's critique. Like, oh, I get it. He literally got shot up with adrenaline. Of course, yeah, just make he, it obvious. Yeah, don't don't take. Oh yeah, he's got adrenaline going, so that's why he was able to get up after taking uh, three backdrop drivers. <laughs> no, like make him get some drugs mid match and have it go off. That's perfect. Good, good. Yeah, exactly. If you're gonna tell the story, tell don't it. be ashamed. Just tell the story. Yeah, yeah. Write the story down. Don't make it. Hmm. Okay, there we go. Yeah, now I'm, I'm amped up now. Okay. Yeah, that one's that one's for free, Gato. <laughs> just just um, mid-match adrenaline shots. Uh, yeah, that's the that's the future of professional wrestling. Um, all right. Um, it, then, do you have anything more you want to speak to to Taker versus Lesnar? Uh, no Mercy, two thousand two. It's such an apparently good match. Like you just, you just watch it, and it, it's not some layered, intricate piece of work. It's them punching each other until they bleed for thirty minutes, and then Brock Lesnar hits an F five. It's it's exactly what it should be, and that's why it's amazing. Yeah, and this is this is young Brock, a totally different wrestler than he is now. Which um, so why if you almost won the the goats. Um. Yeah, I think this is kind of a a great little time capsule, as well as just a perfectly violent, great match. And there we go. Let's move on to your first promo angle in this compilation. We're going to go to lead up to one of the biggest moments in WrestleMania history. It is going to be Daniel Bryan's monster music video joseph take it away why is this on the compilation well as i've mentioned before and in a little known one hour video <laughs> uh daniel bryan he, he's my favorite wrestler of all time and as much as we like to rag on the wwe and how horrible they are deservedly so um man when they when they really put their minds to it they make some of the best uh, pieces of production in wrestling and this this is really one of them um, the monster music video perfectly captures Daniel Bryan's WWE career and it does it in such a precise and concise way that it, it's it's genuinely a bit of a marvel of video editing right because I'm a video essayist I'll speak to you for 15 minutes, uh, 20, 30 minutes, right, to capture a series of matches, a story, 
And here it's a four minute music video and it just hits all the beats, uh, all the emotional beats of you're not good enough, you don't belong here. And the subtle transformation into just this almost undeniable force of nature that Daniel Bryan became in 2013 and 2014, where it just could not be stopped. Could not be stopped regardless of how anyone tried. And it, it, there, there's just something to it. Like, you remember some of the cuts in this video like it's it's burned into my memory the montage of brian doing the yes chant down the entranceway and he and it cuts between him going across time he starts growing the beard and it becomes the brian we know the way that the upbeat tempo it gets cut off when triple h does the pedigree on brian at SummerSlam 2013 and that's sort of like the music videos heat segment uh, when the heels get to like kind of berate Brian before it goes back into that great comeback of Brian just fighting against Triple H's uh, beatdowns and uh, screaming at Triple H, you hit like a girl. Oh man, I get goosebumps. Literally, I just got them thinking about this video and remembering it. it it's so perfect. Uh, and it's still on WWE's YouTube channel for free. And every time I watch it, it still hits all those emotional beats perfectly. Yeah, I think what makes it work continuously is that it's not just, hey, here's the build-up for the pay-per-view. It's like, oh, this is someone's journey, and here's where we are now. Um, yeah, I think it makes me mad, actually, because like you know they can do this. You know how impossibly good WWE can, can be at producing these sorts of videos and producing something that really resonates with you in the course of less than five minutes. Um, and then they don't. So They just don't. <laughs> you know, it, they, you're absolutely right. They, they, there is a choice not to do this. Yeah. Because, oh man, because it, it's so, it's such a great piece of work. In that anyone who bought WrestleMania 30 simply because it was a WrestleMania and saw that video, boom, already. They get it. They get these four years of Brian in the company, and it's instant. It's so good. Yeah, they don't become just invested in this match. They're now invested in Daniel Bryan um, because it wasn't just the one shot. So, oh. Fucking WWE. <laughs> I think uh, there are there are a lot of interesting like side materials to this particular video. Um, one of them, I believe, was a reaction video. I think I came across on YouTube where it was like non wrestling fans watch the monster music video, right? And so here's these here are these people who are not wrestling fans. They watch the music video, and it's so it's so clear. The voice is so clear that these people came out of it saying like, wow, that's a really inspiring story because you sense it, you feel it. And the other thing I wanted to point out about this music video is I don't know if you saw this going around last year, uh, but there were fan edits 
of the monster video remixed with Kofi's journey to the title. And that's amazing. You have not seen it? I have not. Okay, so for everyone who's not seen it, there were fan edits on YouTube uh, where they took the template of the monster music video pretty much beat for beat, right? And instead of Daniel Bryan's rise, uh, they swapped in Kofi's chase to the WWE title. And man, that fan edited video did so much to highlight what was good about the Kofi storyline. In particular, the pure hypocrisy of Daniel Bryan's character. Like, in that fan-edited video, when Bryan's the one looking straight at Kofi and saying, you're a B-plus player, it hits. Because it's like, how dare you? How dare you say that to someone else? It's so good. It's, a, it's such a great piece of editing where I, I it it's better than whatever WWE did actually for the Kofi Bryan uh, match. Like I, I could not tell you anything about the Kofi versus Bryan hype video, even though I love the match, right? But that fan edit, that one will stick out to me. It, it was super good. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't know who created it, but uh, definitely check it out on YouTube. It's one of my favorite little bonus fan creations uh re-wrestling the, the one i'm seeing is from king soul but i'm not sure if that's the specific one i see a couple of them but yeah i think also not to go into like a diatribe here but like how important music is to these videos um especially when it's kind of like this compact thing um monster is just a banger for wrestling no yeah absolutely and you know, a lot of people will point to probably the My Way music video as kind of like the peak of WWE production. Uh, I don't know if it's just a generational thing. My Way just doesn't hit with me. Uh, like, even as its own compact video, the Debra stuff in the middle is like, let's let's just not. <laughs> I know you guys did it. I know you guys did it on TV, but let, let's just not include it. We have four minutes. Let's let's do something else. Uh, so I, I really think that some of the stuff they did in the 2010s really kind of knocks my way out of the park. Like, not even just this video. Yeah, yeah. For me, I think one that stands out is um, Taker versus Michaels running up this hill. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that one, for me, is always a, a big hit. But music, hit the ebbs and flows. Love, love that in my wrestling. Um, well, all right. Without further ado, we can move on to match number four. Um, how's that sound? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So with our fourth match here, we are going to AEW's Revolution from the Winchester Arena in Chicago, Illinois. It is Pac versus Orange Cassidy. This is a unique match. Joseph, why did you pick this match for your Desert Island comp? Okay, so for a Desert Island uh, compilation, there are a few things I wanted to hit. Uh, I really wanted to hit, like, all-time favorites in terms of both matches and wrestlers. And I also really wanted to create a lot of variety. As much as possible, I wanted variety. So, like, hypothetically, if you're stuck, you're not always going to be in the same mood. So even though 
even though this isn't a top 10 matches of Joseph ever, right? There are better matches than some of these that didn't make the list. And uh, Pac versus OC, probably, you know, I don't think anyone's going to hate me for saying this. Probably not a top 10 match ever, right? Uh, And I already liked it much more than most. But I thought that Pac versus Orange Cassidy hit... um, It probably embodied my favorite aspects of comedy wrestling. Like, if I had to describe what comedy wrestling should look like to me personally, like my favorite form of comedy wrestling, it's this match right here. It is the comedic figure against the straight man and all the ways that that can play out. And it's such a compact match in a time in wrestling where length is sort of uh, looked upon with a lot of prestige. Something so concise like this really uh, hits the spot for me. Uh, From your point of view, do you view this as a great match with comedy in it or a great comedy match? I know that's kind of a split hairs thing, but I'm just curious. I, I I have recently tried to narrow the gap between those two things. Um, I don't think there should be much of a difference, although there occasionally is. Um, a funny match isn't always a great match, but uh, I, I, I'm, I've tried to take comedy matches and meet them on their terms. But in the case for... Pac versus Orange Cassidy, I think it absolutely hits both because, and this is why, right? I mentioned that this is what comedy wrestling would look like at at its peak to me personally. And that's because everything in here is 100% believable. Like there's nothing in here that's actually sarcastic or actually breaking the fourth wall. It looks like it is for some people who just want to split hairs and they don't like Orange Cassidy. But actually, everything here is character-based, it's grounded, and it's realistic for what it's trying to achieve. Orange Cassidy has gone on record to say that his character is a wrestler who wants to do as little wrestling as possible. And that's brilliant. That's just genius because now all his matches are built around inertia and evasion and using an opponent's momentum against you. And when you have someone like Pac who's just a hard hitter, he's a high flyer, he's just a dynamic, energetic performer, suddenly the two elements come together and it's perfect because everything Orange Cassidy is trying to do in this match is to undercut all the energy that Pac is throwing at him. Just completely make a mockery of it. And the best moment in this match is uh, Orange Cassidy doing the roll out of the ring, both sides. And even Pac has to stop and be like, you clever son of a bitch. Like, you could see it on his face. He almost breaks. But it also makes sense in character where he's like, he, he doesn't understand what Orange Cassidy is doing. So much so that he's actually a little bit impressed with it. It's so good. And 
the role out of the ring in particular is such a great spot because you know people will look at it and say it's a comedy spot it's a joke spot guys some of the best matches ever from some of the most uh well acclaimed wrestlers ever have roll out of the ring spots there are like so many all japan classics that have Kawada or Misawa rolling out of the ring to escape a pin. And if they can do it, he, Orange Cassidy can definitely do it. And he makes it work so perfectly here. Yeah, I think the difference with Orange is that that is an integral part of his matches, um, rolling out of the ring. Um, so it's rarely used as kind of a last-ditch effort, but within context of, oh... This is the time where he's using it as an avenue to not get pinned. Um, I think that changes things, but I think... Yeah, and that spot was so great because um, comedy-wise, right? You'd think that spot is a punchline on its own. Uh, So the setup is Pac goes to the top. He wants to hit the red arrow. Punchline, Orange Cassidy rolls out of the way, right? But it actually becomes a setup to another punchline later in the match that's a little more subtle it's a little more subtle and people might miss it because the finish is there's a lot of moving parts to the finish there's some interference um Pac rolls out of the ring at the end of the match Orange Cassidy hits his around the world DDT and Pac is like nope nope not dealing with it he rolls out of the ring and it's so great because at that moment Orange Cassidy is so threatening as a legitimate possibility that he's going to win, that Pac is like, no, you were right. I'm out of here. It's so great. Uh, well, there we go. That's kind of a comedy break here uh, in things. As I, I think when you're watching wrestling as a whole, I, it's always good to have something that's a little bit more light, a little bit something that's not going to be heavy and something that you've got to really hunker yourself down with. Um, like, say, the uh, All Japan tag we started with um is there anything more you would like to say about Pac versus orange cassidy uh no no that that pretty much covers it it's just such a light-hearted match and it's only like 12 minutes literally anyone can watch it and they'll get it and it's just a nice break from everything awesome well beautiful let's move on to our fifth match it is going to be from IWA Mid-South, something to prove, taking place in Philadelphia, June 11, 2005. It is Samoa Joe versus the Necro Butcher Joseph. Why do you pick this match? Because everything about it is perfect. It's, 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 it's perfect. Uh, wrestling can be subtle. But if it's going to be loud, it should be the loudest thing in the room. And nothing is louder than this match. Uh, I, I actually did a video essay on this match where I enumerated its qualities using Roland Barthes' framework for the definition of pro wrestling. Because I, I think it's such a timeless match in that it will grab your attention Everything aligned for this to be something special. You know, this was 2005. Samoa Joe was on top of the world. You know, he ha- he he's just coming off of that almost two-year ROH World Title feud. 
the Necro Butcher. He's been building his name as this deathmatch legend. He's this crazy brawler. And they just go out and they just tear the house down pretty much literally for just 10 minutes. And it has some of the best blood in wrestling ever is in this match. Oh, yeah, it is one of the most perfectly violent matches ever. Maybe is the most perfectly violent match ever. Um, and you're right, this is as loud as it gets. It's, in the, in my mind, the greatest sub-10-minute match of all time. Um, just barely making it under the wire, but still under the wire. Um, yeah, when you when Samojo power slams Necro Butcher on his forehead... Um, really, it's one of the, the greatest moments in professional wrestling history, bar not. Hard to beat. Hard to beat. And then, and, and then you have everything surrounding this match, too. This, this match is, is, is packed with legends. You have Joe and Necro in the ring. Uh, Bryce Remsburg is refereeing. CM Punk, Dave Prezak, and Eddie Kingston are on commentary. Like, I'm like, how could you beat that? Uh, I think it's probably the match of the decade of the 2000s because it just everything came together. And y- you, you'll never, ever forget it. Like, as soon as uh, Joe shoves Bryce Remsburg out of the way... And they just start slapping and punching each other. It's it's just the best thing ever that you're going to see. And then they just keep escalating it somehow. Uh, probably the peak of it is when Joe, you know, exploder suplexes Necro off the apron onto his forehead. And he just leaves a pool of his blood on the floor as Eddie Kingston shrieks at the top of his lungs. It's... Oh, it's so great. This is everything that 2000s American independent wrestling should be. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the commentary, like, it's, it's a whole vibe right there because everyone's just, like, in that exact mood. You're in your, me, in my seat, wa- watching on the computer. Um, Kingston and Punk uh, and Prezak also in that exact mood of, oh, this is just ludicrous. Like, Rarely does commentary feel like it's also with you, not not something that's like enhancing in a way that's like perfectly describing what's going on. But folks that are like, "Oh, I'm in the booth right now, and we're just we're watching this shit just explode right now." Yeah, when when Joe starts slapping Necro at the end of the match, and Necro's blood starts misting, how 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 does it get any better? What is wrestling? If it's not Necro Butcher's blood misting into the air of the ECW arena, that is professional wrestling. Um, and of course, it is, it's it's so great uh, on those old uh, IWA Mid South DVDs. Uh, they had the the replays at the end of the match where it's just different angles and some of them are in slow motion, as if they really just they just wanted to be like, okay, that was amazing. Now, here's all of it from a different angle, just more of the same, and some of it is in slow motion. It's just delightful. It's, it's the most excessive eight, nine-minute match of all time. And to say that about something that doesn't go ten minutes is 
an achievement. It's it's a cornerstone of pro wrestling, I think. Yeah, I, I think there's no no more words that really need to be said other than go watch your video uh, on your YouTube channel. Why Samoa Joe versus Next Picture is great, according to Roland Marths. There you go. Yeah, I have a link in the description of this episode. But um, if you're listening on an app, that's the title of the video. Go search it. You're somewhere worth your time. Um, well, all right. Moving on to your sixth match. Maybe one of the most important matches, most talked about matches of the previous decade from Money in the Bank 2011, Allstate Arena. It is CM Punk versus John Cena. Joseph, why did this match make your desert on comp? Um, as you said, people have talked about this match uh, to death for good reason. Um, and one of the points that's brought up, not uh, it's common enough that you notice it, is that people will often say that it's not a five-star match in the ring. And they're probably right about that. Uh, I, I don't think it's really Punk's best performance by a long shot. Like, Cena sort of embarrasses Punk in the ring here a little bit. Like, John Cena is so on point in this match. It's one of the best individual performances of all time. And it's not the guy who everyone remembers this match for. Uh, but yeah, um, despite that, because I do agree, I don't think that in the ring it's five stars. The atmosphere around this match elevates it for me, and clearly it does for many people. Um, this match particularly is kind of important to me uh, just because I have a lot of memories tied into this one. Uh, in 2011, uh, wrestling was back on a accessible cable channel here in the Philippines. It was on Jack TV again, I think. Uh, either Jack TV disappeared or wrestling disappeared from that channel or something. But wrestling was like back uh, and accessible to a lot of people my age who had sort of dropped out watching wrestling. I've, I'd also actually not seen a lot of wrestling in that space and time. But when this match happened, uh, it, it's all anyone was talking about. Uh, the promo, obviously, the historic pipe bomb promo... Uh, it's been said before, and it's a cliche to say it again, but it's so true in that for those four weeks between the pipe bomb and this match, wrestling felt cool again. Like, Tuesdays, because I live in the Philippines, Tuesdays were like an, a, an event where I had to know what happened on Raw. What did CM Punk do this time? And then to have it all culminate in this moment, uh, so WWE pay-per-views air Sundays uh, in America. So that would be a Monday morning uh, for us in the Philippines. My friend uh, in high school, my high school classmate, Cholo, he was absent that day. He had to call in sick, right? And he told me that that day, all he did was watch all three extended cuts of the Lord of the Rings trilogy and watch Money in the Bank. <laughs> so he was at home while everyone else was at school 
And I don't know if he messaged me once I got home, but he just said, dude, punk versus Cena. And I had to use some less than savory means to access the pay-per-view. And it must have been like 12 midnight in my bedroom. Uh, the same one I'm in. I'm recording this from right now. And everyone was asleep. And I was watching Punk versus Cena. And I have such vivid memories of having to stop myself from screaming. Because it was so engrossing. Where even though it wasn't like the best action you'll ever see, uh, it was the most invested I'd been in a long time. Such that it felt like there were actual stakes based on who was winning the match at that time. So if Cena was in control, it was like genuine suspense of this is wrong. This shouldn't be happening. Punk should be whipping his ass. And the way it just built and built and built. And Punk wins, which I did not see coming at all. Punk wins the title. He 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 knocks out Alberto Del Rio. He blows the kiss to Vince. And man, it, I, I don't think wrestling will try forever to capture moments like this again. Like th- this is this is really what people in wrestling aspire to do is to just capture that moment that remains in people's minds forever. And I think that somehow John Cena and CM Punk were able to tap into that here at Money in the Bank 2011. Yeah, this is one of the few matches that kind of escaped out of the boundaries of WWE um, getting into some mainstream press, despite not featuring um, a mainstream talent necessarily, uh, in the sense that it did not have someone like the Rock did not have someone like a Ronda Rousey or anything like that. Um, these are two professional wrestlers that were able to kind of enter the zeitgeist in, for a short period of time here with this, with the promo, with the match itself, with the exit. Um, also, also uh, entered mainstream discussion without a major scandal. Like people were just like. Wow, this is really cool that we need to talk about it. It's it's stunning. It's it's insane that there was not another boom period. Yeah. It speaks volumes to WWE's incompetence that this was not wrestling becoming a huge thing again because it felt like that. Oh yeah, it felt like we, this was an upward trajectory and then SummerSlam happens, and then where'd it go? Um, and then and then Kevin Nash is wrestling Triple H. What? Yeah. Yeah. What it feels that? like in a blink of an eye. Was it, it was gone. Cool. Wrestling felt cool for a minute. Um, something that we couldn't have said for a long time. Um, even when it was great, it wasn't cool um, for a lot of those. Yeah, absolutely. The, the previous decade. Um, I finally felt like, oh... Other people are starting to like wrestling again, possibly, and then snap your fingers. Oh, it's it's back, baby. Where no one loves it again. So, um, <laughs> it's such an interesting match. Such a kind of like a peak. Like okay, like in in a weird way, it's a peak because like for the peak, you're hoping that like oh, it's huge business all around. But this is kind of just like oh, a match that 
will never happen again, which almost like the odds of it ever happening in the first place were zero to none. And the way it all played out, um, everything afterwards, I guess you'll have to ignore to just be like, oh, this was a moment in time that we're never going to get back. But for that moment, it felt like, wow, this is something else entirely that I wasn't prepared for. So, yeah, absolutely. It's it's so it's so special and important to so many people, and uh, I think that really speaks to what they were able to create. Both Cena, uh, Punk, and sure, let's throw in WWE Creative for you know that four week period. They really tapped into something there, and. Uh, uh, it'll be one of those things that you really just have to explain to people in the future because there's no capturing the very real sense of what all of this meant at the time. Yeah, we're almost a decade removed already. Um, it doesn't feel possible. Um, yeah, in a decade prior to even this match, like, wrestling still felt huge um so it just time is bad i hate it um <laughs> that's cm punk versus john cena money in the bank 2011 all right are you ready to move on to your next angle yep up next is going to be the star versus devlin homecoming uh hype video from over the top uh wrestling from last from last year, 2019. So, Joseph, walk me through why you wanted to include this uh, video. Okay, straight up, best wrestling hype video of all time. Keep your my way. This is it. This is the one. Um, man, it's just it's everything a wrestling hype video needs to be in that. All I could tell you about Jordan Devlin at the start of 2019 is um, that he had a really great match with Walter. That's it. That's, That's all it. I knew. Yeah, yeah. He had a really great match with Walter. It was really great, guys. Go check that one out. That's all I could tell you about Mr. Jordan Devlin. David Starr. Uh, what could I tell you about David Starr at the start of 2019? Just... Uh, um. Probably nothing. Genuinely, probably nothing I knew about David Starr at the start of 2019. I'd heard his name. I'd seen it listed in some places. But I couldn't tell you anything about David Starr. And seven minutes later, after clicking this video, I could tell you exactly the character, the motivation. I could explain the nuance of this feud. Well, of course David Starr would turn on Jordan Devlin. He wanted to beat Walter himself. It's so clear obviously guys and it's like that's it it just told me everything i needed to know about these two people it told me why they hate each other and why they think they're right in their positions and it made me want to see them fight and that's all a wrestling hype video should do is tell me why i should care and at the end of this seven minute video Two wrestlers who were more or less strangers to me were people I cared about, like actual fleshed out people 
with thoughts, emotions, and cares and dreams. And I needed to see Jordan Devlin whip David Starr's ass. It's brilliant. It's so good. Yeah, I think this feels like less of a hype video in the traditional sense and more. This is what people think of when they think of like pure sports build is what I would imagine. Um, is that that's what they think this is um, slash it is something that would not feel out of place as the finale to a four part pay-per-view preview um, either. Um, it just feels like that in depth of kind of grounding you into the story um, less so than a um, music video that has a very set duration um, and they're going to mm-hmm. try to play all the clips to get you there. Where this felt like designed with these two individuals adding additional content here to kind of get you to where you need to be with um, this rivalry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, David Starr's performance in his uh, sit-down promos for this video uh, is absolutely tremendous. Like, uh, Sean Ryan did a podcast speaking. Sean Ryan, the director, the creative mind behind this particular video, and a lot of the OTT hype videos that came out that caught a lot of people's attention. He was talking about this video and how... uh, David Starr transform before him. Like, he could see the heel turn happening in real time. And uh, I I feel it comes across on screen because he starts the video sounding very sympathetic, reasonable. He's an articulate guy. And by the end of it, you just want him to be destroyed. It's brilliant. Yeah, I think this is a video that is a lot. Um, And I know... OTT felt like they were on the rise continuously for years. Um, and this kind of production um, was a big part of that. So I have no more to say. Do you want to speak more to this or do you want to move on to your next match? I think I'll just say about it that um, the sequel to this video, the hype video for the fifth anniversary match, is almost just as good. Uh, it's probably of the same quality, and depending on who you are or when you saw these things, you might have uh, a different favorite between the two, but that second one also was uh, so great. Uh, Sean Ryan had such a strong idea about how to get across these characters and their motivations and he was able to make these wrestling matches feel important and major and that's where he succeeded the most with this video and all the other videos that he did for OTT it's 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 a work of art it's really good and there we go let's move on to match number 7 from PWG's Fear, December 10th, 2011, Rosita, California, is Young Bucks versus Appetite for Destruction, Kevin Steen, and Super Dragon. Joseph, why did this match make your Desert Island compilation? Because sometimes you just want to switch your brain off 
and see the young bucks get brutalized. <laughs> and that's it's this is maybe the best young bucks match ever. Maybe. Uh I love the young bucks as heels. They are perfect heels for me because the act just speaks for itself and everything resolves itself perfectly. Like every complaint you could make about the young bucks fits into their kayfabe as heels. So if someone says, well, the young bucks are just flippy, uh, flippy indie wrestlers who don't understand psychology. It's like, no, yeah, they're just doing it to show off. That's the point. And, uh, this was around the time that I was just starting to watch PWG. Uh, I, I was making that transition from ROH to watching more PWG. And uh, the atmosphere in PWG always felt... Um, it was always really alive and really energetic. And the tone of the company as well, it, it felt so welcoming because there was there was that sense of humor on the commentary and uh, all the fans were loving everything. They just ate everything up. It was fantastic. And 2011 was sort of like when I really got into the groove of watching PWG regularly. And so I'd seen this storyline kind of build between Kevin Steen against the Young Bucks, where they would just keep getting in his way, interfere in his matches, attack him. And it's just simple pro wrestling storytelling of these snotty little brat heels uh, pestering your favorite babyface. And then finally... He gets his hands on them. Super Dragon has that great, amazing return angle at the end of Steen Wolf, uh, where the lights go out. Then he's there. Everyone's losing their minds. And then you just follow that naturally to its conclusion, which is this match of Super Dragon and Kevin Steen beat up the Young Bucks for 20 minutes. And it's awesome. <laughs> uh, there is fantastic bumps in this match. Uh, there's a lot of... Uh, those hardcore set pieces that really uh, they really work well in a setting like PWG, where the um, the very small space lends a lot of uh, pop to these uh, hardcore spots because it always feels within reach. Uh, you could see the fans move out of the way. Uh, you can see them patting the workers on the back, encouraging them and chanting. So there's a sense of danger. There's a sense of fun. And just a sense of pure retribution of the Young Bucks have been bothering Steen all year. And now he just destroys them. And Super Dragon, freaking Psycho Drivers, I think it was Nick, off the apron through a table. And it's just everything you want out of a hardcore Babyface tag team versus heel tag team spot match. Yeah, I think the Steen Wolf angle I must have watched um, two dozen times. Um, once that hype video for the DVD came out, I was like, oh my god, he's back. Um, because during this period of time, like, you don't have instant gratification in 2011. Um, and you hear about it through... Pro wrestling ponderings, uh, live results coming in throughout the night. Um, and then you're like, what the hell? 
uh, and you're losing your mind and you're waiting for this video to come out and then boom, it's there. And then it's just as beautiful as you're hoping it is. And then you have this match. They're kind of, hey, here's the, this is what it le- led to. And it's amazing. It's tremendous. It's kind of what you want from a young, the Young Bucks as heels. Heels, heel Young Bucks are the best. You're correct. They are like one of the funnest teams to watch when they are just kind of being these uh, rude-ass, pretty boy, flippy-doos, um, just getting their, their butts beat. So that's kind of what yeah, and. And to add to that, uh, just their their selling throughout this match, it's not like some clever nerd bait limb selling or cumulative selling or any of those things. It's just them getting whooped and looking like everything hurts. Like uh, Steen probably posts both of them and they sell it great. I think Super Dragon curb stomps one of them into the other's balls and it's great it's just it's just them taking all this punishment it's so cathartic it's just such a it's just such a simple release of yes please hurt some more keep hurting them let us let us continue on this path of punishment yeah and this is kind of this is the finale to pwg's best year ever in my mind so i think they really put a beautiful capstone on a year for this small independent promotion of Rosita. I think after this year, PWG becoming quote unquote cool, um, kind of felt like, oh, this is a promotion that has now become a little too self-aware for me um, entering 2012. But I think fear kind of like, oh, this is the last stop. This is the um, finale to this run uh, that we've been on. And there's very few matches that kind of, very few players that I think, would make much more sense for this. Um, well, do you have anything else you'd like to add to this main event from Fear? No, that's about it. It's um, it's a simple match at its core. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Let's move on to match number eight. It is from the twenty fourth G one climax. Uh, Tomohiro Ishii versus Kazuhiri Shibata um, from 2013. This is one of the most legendary Dream 1 matches. Joseph, kind of take, take it away. Uh, so I really wanted to include uh, a New Japan match just because it's uh, such a key part of my fandom as a pro wrestling fan in the 2010s. Obviously, it has had that effect on uh, the wider wrestling community as a whole. And I was really struggling about which New Japan match to include because part of the idea of creating this uh, compilation was that I really wanted matches that were easy to watch. Uh, That was my absolute priority. So there are many New Japan matches that I would consider better than this but very few are as easy to watch. When Shibata and Ishii just collide at the Ring of the Bell and never stop colliding until the bell rings again, it's just... it's. Uh, I think I've seen it described as meat and potatoes wrestling. That's all it is. 
it's just two guys hitting each other really hard. And at the end of the day, that's really cool. And you can't stop watching. It's so compelling. It is... It feels like a time capsule almost. Because it's like, this is... Reyes, New Japan, like... I want to say as we're heating up, this is kind of like... This G1 Climax feels like the one that, like... Oh, we're going Stratosphere now. Like, there is no stopping this train. It doesn't keep going until it can't stop going. Um... And a G1 match is just so different than most of what else they'll do throughout the year because there are certain limitations that they'll put on themselves. Um, and I think this match, like, exceeds because of the limitations that a G1 max kind of is put into. Um, yeah. The 30-minute 30 30 time limit is the exact reason the G1 is so well-loved. Yeah, yeah. I, I strongly believe that. Yeah, and I think part of that is that they prorate the match um, so that a match that might have gone 20 minutes with a 60-minute time limit now becomes a 10 to 15-minute match with a 30-minute time limit. Like, oh, you're doing the right thing. If the time limit is half the length, let's kind of actually bring the actual match length to kind of half of what one would expect. Um Yep, and and because of that, you're just left with the best parts. There's none of this meandering mat work that goes nowhere and doesn't look great. It's just, let's just hit each other for... It's fantastic. Yeah, and Ishii and Shibata are probably not known for having a lot of fat on their matches to begin with, so um, you're really getting the prime cuts, as it were. And this night of the G1 especially was uh, pretty stacked. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm getting my dates mixed up here, but I believe this night also had the first Nakamura versus Ibushi match, which is just a stunner on its own. To have both these matches on the same show is insane. Yeah, it shouldn't be fair. It shouldn't be fair what they kind of were pulling off during this period of time. Um, G1. Who knows if it's even happening this year. Plan is still, but man, it just feels, it would feel weird to have a professional wrestling year without a G1 climax to kind of anchor it in some form or fashion. Um, as kind of doing the we don't know wrestling 100, like, I know that the G1 climax is going to disproportionately alter where a lot of the New Japan professionals folks land at the end of the year especially especially ishii yeah yeah exactly um there is taylor made for it yeah there is a wrestler who has built a lot of his goodwill on his g1 performances yeah and there's just so many so few events where you can watch so many matches of professional wrestler in a short period of time against a variety of opponents um in what will probably be their some of their best matches of the year period um, because of the limitations we talked about. So, without that, what what do we do? What do we do? If, I mean, like, that's the least of the concerns right now, but at the same time, for wrestling, when you have WWE still putting out weekly content, you have AEW doing weekly content, you have um, some promotions that are just going to 
keep going, whether it's advised or not, um, to not have New Japan really have be a factor and not have this series be a factor. Ugh. Yeah, and it's a it's an interesting thing for people like us who discuss wrestling and uh, kind of critique wrestling, right? Because this year, because of because the world is on fire, um, the wrestling discourse will skew so heavily to WWE and AEW just by default because they're the ones putting out content. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, this year is going to have a bit of an asterisk about it, uh, on it when we're talking about some of the best matches and wrestlers of 2020 um, or when we're talking about the 2020s of the decade. Um, it's going to be hard to kind of pinpoint like how does 2020 play a factor in our kind of discussions? Um, like, <laughs> yeah. Who really cares? But at the same time, it's like, how do you make this work? Slash, are there wrestlers that are now going to be able to wrestle much longer than they might have been? Um, or like add on two, three years because they had to take a six-month layoff or whatever. Um, we'll be seeing repercussions of this period of time for a long time to come. Um Obviously, from the world standpoint, but also in our our entertainment forms that are keeping us busy uh, during this time. Yeah, just our little bubble. I think I I I think I'd like to hope that uh, the larger issues of the times are forefront in most people's minds. But yeah, it's it's always fascinating to see how it affects this little part of the world that we love so much. Absolutely. Uh, do you have anything more to add to Ishii versus Shibata, or would you like to move on to your uh, ninth match? Yeah, we can do number nine. With your ninth match from PWR's Love at First Bite from February 23rd, 2020, from the Power Max Center Spotlight, it is Chris Panzer versus Robbie Eagles. Joseph, why did you choose this match for your Desert Island Comp? Okay, so I absolutely had to get a local wrestling match on this list, and there's no better match to have on here than Robbie Eagles versus Chris Panzer. Um, by far, the best match I've ever seen live. That's not a long list, but of the matches I have seen, this this is this is at the top of the mountain, and. I was there live on February 23rd, and at the time, um, I, I I hadn't been the biggest fan of some of the other big names that had been brought into uh, the country at that point. Like I didn't feel like the the bigger independent names that had visited previously really, uh, really put on a match uh, worthy of their reputation for one reason or another. But this was the time where it really felt like, okay, we're firing on all cylinders here. This isn't, um, this isn't any less than what you would have expected. And in many ways, it's so much more. So to all the people listening to this that are unfamiliar with the Philippine independent wrestling scene, which I am assuming is all of you, um, Chris Panzer is the current PWR champion. He also was at the time. 
Uh, he is the defending champion, having won it in a triple threat match against Quattro, the former champion, and Jeff Cobb. And Chris Panzer is sort of a day one original in the Philippine independent wrestling scene. He was one of the first talents that really helped build the foundations for the scene back in uh, I want 2015 or 2014, 2015, when the scene sparked back up again after decades in uh, being dormant. Uh, so Chris Panzer has been integral to the pro wrestling scene since that time. And uh, in 2019, he turned heel and joined up with the Mr. C group, which is a stable uh, led by the manager, Mr. C, who is at ringside for this match. And he's basically just become your classic heel champion Top of the food chain, cheat to get the win, manager doing interference, stablemates running interference. It's just, it's all classic heel work, right? And uh, I really feel like Chris Panzer kind of really stepped up his game in this match because he had to. He really had to because he's one-on-one with uh, one of the best wrestlers in the world, Robbie Eagles. And Robbie Eagles came in and he just put on a show, man. He... Obviously, he has this uh, following, this fan following from his time in New Japan. Uh, a lot of the wrestling fans who go to Philippine independent sh- wrestling shows are New Japan fans. So this is kind of like their connection to New Japan. This is almost the closest they can get to seeing New Japan. I know it was for me personally, and it really it really felt like a big deal. It was really momentous that Robbie Eagles came in to do this match and... Not only to come in and to do this match, to really just uh, give his all. The pacing of the match was so fast, so frenetic that there was abs- there were no breaks here. Uh, they just completely went at it for 20 straight minutes where th- it, it, there was just no lulls. There were no lulls in this match. And as a fan, I was front row. I was losing my mind the whole time. And watching it back, I was so glad it totally held up like obviously there's gonna be some bias there from a patriotism standpoint from a live bias standpoint but i can tell you that there are a lot of matches i've really enjoyed live that suffer when i see it uh on footage again this one really did not lose too much at all moving to the footage and i i i have such fondness for it because i really feel like of all the matches that have happened in the Philippines since 2015 when the scene got restarted. I really do feel like this is probably the most internationally competitive that I can sort of champion and hold up and say, this is what we can do. This is kind of the standard that we in the Philippines can aspire to. I can show this to people who don't know the Philippine wrestling scene, and I can sort of get behind it and say... Hey, you like Robbie Eagles? You've seen him in New Japan. Check out this match he did in the Philippines. He really put on a show. Chris Panzer, his opponent, really kind of elevated himself to match that level. And yeah, that's why I love it so much. There's so much. A lot of it, of course, is tied into my desire to champion my local scene. But I really do feel that people who give it the time will enjoy it and see that there's a lot about it to enjoy because uh, Robbie Eagles just destroys Chris Panzer for about 15 minutes. 
And then uh, shenanigans happened with Mr. C and some interference. And Robbie Eagle's shoulders get de- get put down for a three count. And that's really important to me. Like, it's really important to me that uh, Chris Panzer was able to get this win. He got a win, a pinfall victory over a former New Japan Junior Heavyweight Champion, someone who was probably going to win the Junior Heavyweight belt. Probably by now, if it hadn't been for the coronavirus. I mean, with Will Ospreay moving into the heavyweight division, Robbie Eagles is sort of a natural successor to that slot. So, yeah, this was a big deal. I was there live. It was amazing live. Uh, it's available for free to watch on PWR's YouTube channel. I, I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, so I was going to mention that. You can watch it on YouTube, Chris Panzer vs. Robbie Eagles. Uh, on Philippine Wrestling Revolution's YouTube channel. Um, you also create a video for it called um, How Chris Panzer vs. Robbie Eagles Made Me Sick. Um, so I would say watch match, then watch your video, and I think uh, that's kind of a one, good one-two punch uh, to kind of get a better understanding here. Uh, I think, one, everyone wants to be able to support their level scene. And as someone that kind of grew up in a, not a uh, entirely different country, but in an area that uh, wasn't, known for having great wrestling i totally grasp uh wanting to be able to champion something to be able to push uh, something forward and say hey this represents our community this represents what is possible here's kind of what we'd like to show you to say hey maybe you should be paying a little bit more attention to what we're doing so that um one uh you're not kind of missing the boat here slash um something to be proud of and i think that's nothing is wrong with that and that's kind of perfect thing to bring with you uh to a desert island um as something that is close to home, for sure. Um, well, admittedly, I don't have too much to add to this match. Um, I had watched your video before uh, hopping on here, and I think a lot of kind of the insights into the match, one you've discussed slash you've uh, produced a video for it. Um, but one, I'm just glad you were able to get something that was local to you on this uh, list here, because I think that's important to be able to try and bring a piece of home with you to somewhere, wherever you go. Um, all right. Do you have anything you'd like to add to this match? Uh, yeah, I should probably say that um, if you guys want to check out any of the local wrestling, uh, specifically if you want to see PWR, their, their self-proclaimed biggest show ever. And, you know, probably, yeah, their biggest show ever in terms of uh, names – Attached to it in terms of the crowd they drew, uh, PWR Homecoming from last year, 2019. It's currently available for on-demand streaming. Uh, I'll send, I'll send you a, a link that you can probably put in the description. So uh, check it out. It's currently on demand. I believe it's uh, nine dollars to check it out, which I think is a really fair price given the quality of that show. So definitely look it up. But uh, if that's if you want to see the full show, if you just want to see one match that I really feel like uh, exemplifies what can be done here in the Philippines, it's Eagles versus Panzer. It's available for free on their YouTube channel. Amazing. And with that, we're going to move on to our final promo of the set. Kingston's High Noon promo for Jakara. Uh, to hype up that first 
Chikar Grand Championship match in 2011. Joseph, why did this promo make your compilation? Uh, I'm sort of cheating with this one because if I had a way to put all of Eddie Kingston's promos at this slot, that's what I would do. So this promo is just a stand-in for every Eddie Kingston promo. Uh, Eddie Kingston is one of the best promo workers in the history of wrestling. And he will sadly uh, be lost in that discussion, not because of anything he did, but simply because he was never in the WWE and they control the historical narrative of wrestling. Uh, Eddie Kingston has the perfect grasp of how to craft a promo. Um, And this is the one that people will probably remember the most. If not this one, they'll likely point to the very brief but very uh, effective promo that he cut on NWA Power a couple months ago. Uh, I don't even remember. He was doing it on a tag team. I don't even remember who, but it made the rounds. It got, uh, it went really viral on Twitter. But between that and this, these are his most famous and most well-remembered promos because every time Eddie Kingston uh, does a pro wrestling promo, it always feels genuine. You watch an Eddie Kingston promo and you feel like you are seeing a man speaking directly to you about his thoughts, his feelings. Uh, It never, ever seems like a performance. It never, ever feels like something that's put on or artificial or the worst thing that you can be in wrestling, which is fake. It's so raw and real every time. And despite that, there's also a very clear crafting to it. There's so much thought put into how Eddie Kingston delivers these promos. In this one, he's basically talking about he's going to wrestle Mike Quackenbush in the finals of a tournament. The winner becomes the first ever Chikara Grand Champion. And Eddie Kingston grounds that in a reality that's prestigious enough. Uh, as a wrestling angle, that it would sell itself, right? First ever champion for this uh, independent promotion that's been around for close to a decade, and we're finally going to crown a singles champion. But Eddie Kingston is able to tie it into something so real and so emotional in the sense that he makes it a tribute to Larry Sweeney, who had passed on recently at that time. Uh, The tournament, the 12 Large Summit, was of course named after one of Sweeney's famous catchphrases, and Eddie spends this promo basically dedicating his performance, his eventual victory to Larry Sweeney. And it it's not cringeworthy. It's not uh, tasteless. It just feels like a person who lost a friend uh, trying to honor that memory in the best way they can. And it comes across perfectly well in the four minutes that he has speaking for this promo. Yeah, it's one of the few wrestling-related things that gets me choked up to a degree. It gets me a very... It, it's emotional. Um, it's powerful. And a promotion that is known for its outlandishness, for its cartoonness, even when um, the matches are big and serious, it still matches like um, a group called uh 
the uh, the ants, these co- the colony um, that are a group of ants um, wrestling uh, friends in similar types. So, like, even when it's being its most big and serious, um, it's not as real as this promo. Um, this feels out of place, but at the same time feels right, feels um, proper that Eddie would be delivering this promo for this match. Um, yeah, it, it's it's something else. It's something that I, you should be watching. You should kind of try to listen to his words. Kind of, That's what a promo to me is like. One of the best I've ever heard. Um, maybe the best I've ever heard. Because um, it's more than a promo. It's something that's real from the heart and um, helps escalate that match specifically beyond what it ever could have been without it. Eddie Kingston, man. There was a period in time in high school where um, I would just watch Eddie Kingston promos. Like, uh, I couldn't get my hands on the Chikar shows. I couldn't see the DVDs. But uh, people would post his promos from like 2008, 2007 on YouTube, and I would just watch them straight because that's uh, it. it um, you build these kind of emotional connections in wrestling, and that's how I kind of built mine uh, for Eddie Kingston and Eddie Kingston's work is through his promo work, and this is uh, this promo is one of the best in a career filled with them. Absolutely. Um, well, then, if we have nothing else to add, I will move on to your 10th and final match on your Dead Island Comp. It is going to be from NXT's TakeOver Brooklyn um, from October 7, 2015, from the Barclays Center. It is Sasha Banks versus Bailey in the uh, Ironman match. I hate to step on your toes here. It's um, NXT Takeover Respect. Oh, in okay. the yeah, I in apologies. full sale. I messed that up. I messed it up. I apologize. It's okay. No, but we can actually talk about that. That's interesting. All right, like in that case, take it away. Uh, regardless for Sasha Banks versus Bailey. All right, so you know that that's a that's a really interesting mistake you made, right? Because I think it sort of encapsulates the general mood about this pair of matches is that most people will remember the TakeOver Brooklyn match and they kind of hold up the TakeOver Brooklyn match uh, as uh, the best of the two. Um, And obviously it has a place in history as sort of like uh, the peak of this NXT women's revolution, evolution, whatever you want to call it. That was the match in Brooklyn where everyone said, okay, uh, WWE women's wrestling is a serious thing that we need to be watching right now. Uh, but for me, even at the time, the Iron Woman match uh, a couple months later was just so much better in almost every way. The only thing you could probably say it doesn't have that the Brooklyn match uh, did was just that sense of special atmosphere, that kind of once-in-a-lifetime feeling of that moment in Brooklyn uh, that probably is similar to what we described with the Money in the Bank 2011 match. But I think like the Iron Woman match has always stood out to me specifically uh, because Sasha Banks makes a little girl cry. (laughs) 
and that to me is just man if nigel headbutting brian is my number one heel move ever this has to be this has got to be top five if it's not number two because i don't care if izzy was a plant or if she knew what was going to happen or any of that in the moment it is so effective for sasha banks to just snatch this little child's ribbon mock her in the ring and leave her in tears that is not something that is that is the kind of reaction wwe always hopes they could get every time wwe cuts to someone in the crowd in all those shots that we like to complain about and how kevin dunn is an idiot uh, it's because they want to see something like this that feels so real and so genuine and so moving that it just adds to the story of you just want to see Bailey thrash her after that. And it, it's it's a smartly structured match in a way that I don't think the Brooklyn match even was. The Brooklyn match is extremely good. It's a great match. By no means is it bad in any way. But I just love the structure of this match so much more. I love how... Sasha really had to rely on switching up her playbook and really playing dirty to try and get an advantage on Bailey. I love that she got a fall by countout by thrashing Bailey into the video screen. I love that the finish of the match, which shows Bailey winning, isn't with Bailey's belly to belly belly to belly suplex. It's using some Zack Saber Jr. esque arm submission that she'll never use again but she used it this one time because she was working over Sasha's arm there's so much to love about this match and they do it all uh, across 30 minutes I don't think it ever gets boring they blow maybe like one or two spots if you really want to split hairs about criticizing it but man this match this match really works for me Um, and I, I feel like there's more here to enjoy and all of it is incredibly substantial uh, in comparison to the much more famous match in Brooklyn. Yeah, I think I apologize for the air there. Um, for whatever reason, I always remember the Iron One match being so much bigger than it was. Um, and I don't know why in my memory, that's memory plays tricks on you. Um, but yeah, this, I, for me, when I kind of go back, I'm like, Oh, okay. I'm back. Um, the, this is the match that I think really... I know the Brooklyn match does get all the love um, for good reason because it's the one that does stick with you. Um, I think uh, I showed it. But the Iron Man match is kind of different. It's a different animal altogether. It is kind of one of the best matches that year, period. Um, and helps encapsulate a, a feud. Um, an era of WWE wins wrestling. Um, I think even before, like, hey, we're going to take the next step in the women's revolution here um, on the main roster, I think this is kind of more or less signifying the end of this era. Um, like, hey, they're going to still be doing great things, but it's going to be real hard to get past this. Um, this is kind of what you were hoping for, and this is what you were expecting. Um, I don't think we're ever going to get that again, but I think main roster wrestling period is going to be hard to replicate that sort of success yeah you you sort of need a you you really need like 
uh, once-in-a-lifetime talents to get anything out of main roster wrestling. And I really don't think uh, anything since has gotten close in the WWE in terms of women's wrestling to this match. I think it's by far my favorite WWE women's match ever. It might be my favorite women's match ever. Uh, there's a few Joshi matches in competition there, but this is this is really up there. Um, yeah, I, you, it, it's another one of those things where you really have that sense of wasted potential because you have these two wrestlers who can do this and they have done it on your platform. And again, they're just not doing it anymore. <laughs> and it's it's upsetting and it's very sad, but no one can take away what they have done at the time. Yeah, even if you can't get back there, um, we always have this. Um, for better or worse, you'll always have this one moment. Um but man, if it's kind of a cliche, if WWE could um, loosen the shackles a little bit, but at the same time, presentation's a huge part of it, um, and I just don't think we'll ever get the kind of feeling back anytime soon for most main roster WWE stuff. So, fingers crossed, though. Is there anything else you would like to add to Sasha versus Bailey from respect? No, that 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 pretty much covers. Maybe if I did want to bring anything up, is that um the end of the match has kind of the NXT roster coming out. Triple H hands them bouquets of flowers and all that, and uh, I think it says something that uh that doesn't feel quite as masturbatory as other similar moments feel now when NXT attempts it. At the time, it really felt warranted, and it did feel like an achievement because I don't think a this, this was the first uh, WWE event, uh, like a network event, uh, like a pay per view level event that was main evented by a women's match. And I thought the flowers at the end were a nice touch. It, it kind of felt like uh, a Japanese match where the competitors will receive bouquets beforehand. Here, they just saved it for after. It, it, it felt like a big deal. Uh, I know people will always remember the Brooklyn one, uh, but uh, go back to this one. I, I think you'll be surprised by how well it holds up. And there you go. You can watch that on the award-winning WWE Network um, today. Well, with that, Joseph, is there any? this is your list. There we go. We have your favorite professional wrestler, on here, not once, but twice in the form of a match and a video. Um, we have a comedy match. We have the greatest sub-10-minute match of all time. We have historically important WWE matches. Um, we have a pivot point in maybe your fandom with that All Japan tag from June 9th, 1995. We have one of the great promos, uh, professional wrestling promos, in Eddie Kingston represented we have a hometown favorite in chris panzer versus robbie eagles uh we have peak pwg in young bucks versus steen and super dragon is there anything else you'd like to add for your desert island comp as far as discussion points of hey here's how i'm feeling about being shipped off sent away 
all by your lonesome for the rest of your days taking these 10 matches, three promos and videos with you? Um, I, I, uh, at the end of the day, I, I feel pretty happy with the selections that I made. Um, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm such a list... I'm such a list pervert that I really like uh, uh, lists that have like a certain unique flavor to them. Uh, so I really wanted to avoid super canonical uh, selections. Uh, I obviously couldn't entirely avoid them because they're canonical for a reason. But I, I, I feel like the, this, uh, this list of 10 matches, I, I feel like it does capture a lot of what I believe good pro wrestling is looks like can look like and should look like uh these 10 matches kind of they're they're a sort of statement on my personal aesthetics uh, as a wrestling fan where if you want to know what i personally like and you don't want to have to watch every video i put on youtube or read every review i put on my blog then this is sort of like a condensed reading list of my Joseph Montesilio's view of good professional wrestling. So there you go. And there we go. With that, I would say, hey, go check out your YouTube channel, Joseph Montesilio. Also, do you have anything else you'd like to plug before we kind of end this episode, ship you off, take you with your Desert Island comp, um, and say, in part ways. Uh, yeah, sure. You can uh, check out my review blog. That's josephmontesilio.wordpress.com. Uh, I mostly review stuff from 2020, and mostly it's stuff that I enjoy. But there's also some stuff on there that's a little more cynical than what I usually do on my YouTube channel. So on YouTube, where I'm a little more celebratory, uh, I get a little bit into the nitty-gritty of things I don't really like on my blog uh if you really want to see something i don't like on my blog uh look for my review of johnny gargano versus tommaso champa one final beat uh i enjoyed writing that but the means of getting there was a little less enjoyable so check that out if you have the time well that's perfect thank you so much for being on and thank you all for listening and with that goodbye Thanks, everybody.